Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Calling all keyboard cowboys. It's time to saddle up, tear off another wad of beef jerky and mosey on over to our digital campfire for some more fireside stories with the fastest talker in the West, Mr. Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? What's been happening? Yeah, it's been pretty good, actually, James, although I must admit I've got a little injury that I've had to take care of this week. Right. And, look, I love cycling, I love mountain bike riding, and every now and again I have a bit of a brain snap and I say, you know, that running, that looks like a pretty good thing to do. Uh. And I forget the last time that I ran... My knees don't like running, so I've been doing a bit of running. I Aging love, joints. Oh, that's exactly yeah. it. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> and I love parkrun. I love the whole concept of parkrun. I think the volunteers and the organisers of parkrun do a fantastic job. So when, at the end of last year, parkrun started back up again after our close down across the world for pandemic reasons, I thought, I'll go along and support parkrun. I'll, I'll go there and I'll do a bit of running. And I've been doing a little bit of that. But of course, my poor old knees started a bit sore and tired. And finally, I went, you know what? Maybe that age has caught up with me. I'm actually going to go to a doctor and say, can you tell me how bad this knee is and should I definitely give up running altogether? I'm definitely getting old when you've got to go to the doctor to check out your joints. <laughs> That's yeah? right. So what I was impressed about, apart from my knee being yeah, pretty well just about broken and just go back to cycling, what I was really impressed about was the medical system now, the ability for them to distribute the imagery. So I went along to the doctor, and of course the doctor gives you the referral to go and get your MRI done, went to have the MRI done, and within an hour maybe, or hours of me being and having that MRI done, on my computer, I was looking at images of my knee. It meant absolutely nothing to yeah, me. I had no idea. What was, <laughs> no like idea. A it bunch of like, grey and black and white blobs, yeah. It, it good. looked fascinating. <laughs> to me, it looked fantastic and terrible all at the same time. But obviously, the doctor that referred me got that, so I could go along and talk to him about all of that process. But I can remember doing some work for some doctors probably 20 years ago, and they kept saying, one day soon, you won't have to get those x-ray films or get those physical things and then take it to the next doctor or take it to the specialist. And they kept talking about one day soon, one day soon. And I'm not sure if it's quite there yet, but it's pretty impressive that we've now got that ability to see that imagery. And again, even just sending it to me, I thought that was pretty cool that they sent it to the patient who knows nothing about it just to have a look at their knee and to see what it all looks like inside. And just the detail on an MRI is quite incredible, mm, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's the best medical technology diagnostics. Oh, I'm amazed by it. It's a long way from Leonardo da Vinci's um, crude sketches um, from whatever, 500 years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've moved <laughs> along and he still had to do them on bits of paper. You know, he couldn't yeah. transfer those electronically. Oh, you had to wait weeks for those. <laughs> That's right. But it is cool that you can get that sort of information transferred around. And again, it relies on all those systems working together, all the protocols to make all those different systems work together. But I think yeah. we're getting there with that. Uh, very, very cool. Mm. I saw on today's rundown, uh, you've got some creative drone deliveries courtesy of the British Royal Marines there, provided they don't need to tangle with the FAA in the US, of course. You've also got some chilling news for some people who want to live forever. But it's been a while since we last took a good peek at what's been happening with EVs. So uh, how about this, folks? Balking at buying an electric vehicle because you're worried about lengthy charge times? What if the vehicle was charging while you drove? How about this, Matt? Well, some people think that you can get perpetual motion, don't they? They mm. have this crazy idea. And no, you lots can't of, invent energy. That's right. There are lots of YouTube clips about exactly that. Hey, we've got perpetual motion. We can go forever. And so it sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Charge as you drive. What have you been drinking, James? That just seems mm. like crazy stuff. But there are several countries around the world now that are building trial sections of road, hopefully rolling it out big picture, but at the moment just trial sections, where they've actually got 
charging coils underneath the road. So as you drive your electric vehicle along the road, it does actually charge your electric vehicle as you drive. Now, obviously, (laughs) it's getting the energy from somewhere else. It's not creating energy. As we know, it can't be created or destroyed. It just changes form. So it is actually getting the energy from somewhere else. It's getting it from the grid and presumably from renewables. But it's a bit like your mobile phone that you can wirelessly charge. You're using Faraday's law of induction. You're sitting a phone down on a charging pad, and the two don't have any wires that connect them, but it's creating electric signal, electric circuit in the second device, the phone that sits on top. Yeah, you just need an alternating current there. Absolutely Changing right. magnetic flux, and off you go. Yeah, so with a car at the moment, if you own an EV, you can buy as an aftermarket accessory a charging pad that you put in your garage. You can mount a little induction pad underneath your car that's very thin, doesn't really add much to the ground clearance or take away much from the ground clearance. And as you drive in the garage, you just pull up over the charging pad and it starts charging your car. That's pretty cool. boom. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So that's convenient. But then when you apply that same concept to a road, Then you drive along and you start to charge up as you're driving along. And the charging rate is higher than you can drive. So in some of the trials so far, they're talking about being able to charge your car at roughly the rate of about 400 kilometres of charge per hour of time you're over that road. You obviously can't drive at 400 kilometres an hour legally anyway. (laughs) So while you're driving, and again, you'd probably use it in a certain area where it was a fairly busy area and traffic was slow, so you're on that road for longer. And I did a couple of quick bits of analysis on, say, in Sydney, the commute times and the drive times in Sydney, the average commute time in Sydney is about 50 minutes. So someone sitting in their car for about 50 minutes on their way to work and they travel only about 20 kilometres in that time. So they're not travelling very far. So imagine if you had a section of road on there that you were on for, say, half an hour and you're driving, obviously, in that time less than 20 kilometres. So you might use up, say, 15 kilometres of charge while you're travelling on that bit of road, but you added... 200 kilometres of charge to your batteries while you're on that section of road. You've cashed in. That's fantastic. Yeah, so this is happening at the moment in Indiana, in the US. We've already got some trial roads in some other places. Norway, no surprise there. Mm. Number one location in the world for concentration of EVs. You've also got it in Sweden, South Korea, Italy. They've got different versions of it and they've got different concepts. There's one place in Norway, for example, that's not rolling it out along the road where people drive. They're rolling it out in certain parking areas, in certain parking spots, and also in taxi ranks. And I thought the idea of taxi ranks was pretty cool because the idea is you're sitting there waiting to pick up your next fare. You don't want to get out, plug in your charge. Oh, as soon as someone comes along, Murphy's Law says, I've got to unplug and get straight into it. You just have automatic charging with some sort of charging pad underneath the taxi rank. As soon as they pull up, it starts charging. If they're there for five minutes or half an hour or an hour, there's no inconvenience for them or the passengers. As soon as they drive off the charging pad, the charging stops. So this is the sort of place we're going yeah. now. Yeah, wow. I actually get asked all the time, James, the first question I get asked when someone talks about one of my electric vehicles is, how far will it go? The second question they ask is, how long does it take to charge? Imagine saying, I never have to charge it because the, the road charges it for me. Imagine saying, I never stop at a charging station or in the old days a petrol station. It just charges for me as I drive. This is pretty cool. You know, there's a bunch of people out there right now that are going into meltdown now because who's going to make any money out of this? How can we make money out of this? Well, I imagine that the only way you do it is to have a toll on the road that you drove on mm. or there might be a toll on a certain section of that road. Some of the trials have been doing have been involving trucking companies driving over these sections of road that are charging up for them and then it's actually metered back in the trucking company they've got it in their actual vehicle itself so it's metered so they actually pay as they go so it's a system that you're only paying for it while you're charged I reckon someone will work out how to charge it for it because they want to know how they can make money out of it you're spot on there 
but that's not really, in, from my perspective, it's really about the technology there. Yeah, it's We're, amazing technology. It is amazing technology. What a direction. Yeah. So anyway, pretty cool stuff and rolling out to a road somewhere not in Australia soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand in Scandinavia they're also um, developing solar-powered roads as well, so you know, put the two and two together, this is going to be fantastic. We have talked about those before, but that would be mm. a, a very cool combination of solar panel roads mm. that are giving you some electricity to put into the grid to then give you induction charging as you drove. Yeah. It's a perfect sort of environment, isn't it? There you go. Drone deliveries are happening all over the world. If you want to get pizza, coffee or whatever, whatever you picked up for a bargain at Amazon even, not wanting to miss out on the good idea, the British military are on board with drone deliveries to the front line. Are they getting their pizza delivered there? Probably not, but... Well, it probably is one of those things that millennials joining the commandos say, well, if I can't get a coffee, I'm not going to go and fight for you, am I? So maybe it was about coffees initially, but they've come up with something a little bit more important. Injuries on the battlefield are obviously a major part of battle. And one of the things is you've got medics there that can patch you up, but one of the real issues is blood loss Mm. and then trying to replace that blood loss. You can't really have soldiers running around with some blood in their backpack. You can't keep it at the right temperature, different blood types, all the rest of it. But they're now using drones to do blood deliveries, as you say, straight to the front line. You've got an injury out there in the battlefield, send in the drone with some blood and get that straight to where it needs to go. And obviously you can have it straight out of the refrigerator, it can get there very quickly. And as we've talked about before, drones are pretty hard to just knock out of the air. So Mm. you're probably a pretty good chance of getting that drone where it needs to go. They're not just your average drone that you go up to a a little white goods retailer and say, I'll grab one of those, strap some blood to it, and away we go. They're pretty serious drones. They've got a range of about 70 kilometres. So that's a fair way you can get from wherever your headquarters are or wherever the command station is out into the battlefield. They can carry 65 kilograms. I've got some friends that only weigh 65 (laughs) kilograms. They could be hanging off the bottom of this train. Yeah, that's right. That's like the the transport back to the base camp. That's right. Help, get me out of here. They can fly for about 36 minutes. So they've got a a reasonable sort of fly time as well. So you combine all of that and you can get some serious supplies into the front line. They've been doing some exercises at the moment in Britain and just trying out these drones. I'm assuming they're not shooting people and then saying bleed out for a while and we'll send the blood (laughs) in. I'm, I'm assuming it's all simulated. But the other thing they've been using it for is ammunition. And that yeah, makes that a lot makes of sense. sense as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can only carry so much ammunition on you. Then when you use up that ammunition, I mean, in the movies, they never use up their ammunition. It always seems to go forever. But in real life, I assume it gets to the end. And then I kind of think that once you've run out of ammunition out in the battlefield, you're basically a target. You're no longer yeah. a soldier. Yeah. You're a target. And the, the Monty Python, Holy Grail sort of comes to mind. You, oh, yeah. you run out of ammunition you're sitting there and you go, run away, run away. Because yeah. it wouldn't be very pleasant being oh, out in the battlefield in the first place. And, and look, you could, there's no reason why you couldn't have a swarm of drones. As we've talked about these swarms of drones. You, mm. you, we're talking more than a dozen. We're talking 25. We're talking 50 or whatever. They can be landing there on the front line, either dropping off blood or dropping off ammunition, etc. Etc. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, is that official? Are they officially called a swarm of drones? Or are we, just are we made trying it to get official. right? Are we trying to get people to catch on to what we're <laughs> saying? And, and next, you know, we'll be seeing that reported in the New York Times or something. <laughs> so the other part that I think is interesting here is often the military develops stuff, yeah. and they've got money and they've got needs to do it, and so they develop some really cool technology. And this is an example of that. But I think in the real world, then some of those ideas float down to that. So again, think of, for example, a major accident on the highway. You can't get enough ambulances in there to get people away. You've got people that are injured, fly in some blood. If you've got a tsunami that hits and the hospitals are just flooded with people, excuse the bad pun there, Mm. flooded with people coming in, again, getting drones to get medical supplies, getting blood out there, that all makes a lot of sense. So you'll see drones used, I think, in everyday life for some of those situations, as well as in the military. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting story there. And uh, more to come there, I don't doubt. Now, have you heard that urban myth about Walt Disney's head being frozen cryonically? Uh, Sorry to burst your bubble, but it's just a myth. What is not a myth, though, is that there is the opportunity to freeze your bits so you can be woken up later in future to solve whatever problem that that was going to be your demise. What I'm talking about here is people are choosing now to be potentially cryonically frozen so that when they die, on that moment, they can be frozen and then brought back to life later on. Matt, where do I sign up? (laughs) Sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? I'm not sure I want to live forever, but first of all, we'll just define cryonics and cryogenics. Yeah, yeah. They're two words that are often mixed up, and people often refer to this sort of thing as cryogenics. There you go. Cryogenics is the study of very low temperatures. Cryonics is what we're talking about here, but you use low temperatures to put someone into a cryonic state, which is why I think there's a confusion between the yeah, two so words. So you use cryogenics to achieve your cryonics. Perfect. Excellent. Exactly right. So you can impress people at the next local barbecue <laughs> right. when we're people are talking that. about cryogenics. No, no, it's cryonics. So this is really interesting. And at the moment, there's a bargain basement price. It's normally $150,000, James, but at the moment, you can get in at a founder's fee for only $50,000. Wow. This is the first bargain. facility we'll see here in Australia. Obviously, there are facilities overseas. And I used to always hear the joke about Walt Disney as well being in suspended animation. Boom, boom. <laughs> but in Australia, there is no facility at the moment. They're still finalising some of the government approvals. I don't know how you do that because there's obviously no precedent for that. So that would be a pretty difficult task to go through. But they are making promises that they will freeze you, but no promises that they'll bring you back later on. (laughs) (laughs) The director of this organisation says, we don't know if you can do it. It looks great in the movies. We hope we can do it one day. But at this stage, well, we'll just, we'll keep you there. We'll keep you in some sort of suspended or frozen state. But that's as far as our guarantee goes. Because the trick is bringing people back from that state, even when they were, you know, let's say you froze something that was healthy, we're able to do it with embryos. We know that we can uh, bring embryos out of that uh, cryonic um, state, but um, they've got young cells that can be healed really, really quickly and easily, and they don't have as many as what we do. I think um, one of the issues is being able to stop yourselves from from turning to mush on the inside when your water in your cells um, starts to rupture your cells. That's right. And they've been able to do it, as you say, embryos. The other thing they've been able to successfully do it with, which is a great sign for the future, is Russian roundworms. Okay. So, the, so the Russian roundworms have been able to do it, so surely we're not too <laughs> far away. The thing that I think about is when you see those science experiments where you take a leaf of lettuce and it's in a nice, not solid state, but it's a formed state. It sits there in a nice cup and you put it in some liquid nitrogen and you freeze it and then you let it thaw out again and it just flops down into a floppily mm. sort of green bit of mush. And I assume... I don't have the technical details to say that. Mush. Mush. (laughs) I assume that what happens there is that those bits of water inside the lettuce leaf expand as water freezes and then that breaks down that cell structure. In a yeah, it's because they form that hexagonal shape that you see so commonly in, in snowflakes and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and so that's okay for a leaf of lettuce, but for the human body, given the fact we're about 70% water, it probably wouldn't go so well for us. I don't know how they're solving that problem. I don't think they know how they're solving that problem. Mm. All they guarantee, James, is that we will freeze you. <laughs> we, we will keep you frozen. <laughs> the other thing I find interesting about this is the facility has got some people that have signed up so far, 27 investors at the bargain basement price. And the facility they're building, which is halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, is a building that will house approximately 800 people. Up to 800 people, they're saying, they'll Mm. have in a chronic state in there. They'll have that looked after 24 hours a day. There'll be a caretaker there 24 hours a day. I'm not sure that I'd want the job of the night shift 
in a location that had 800 people in some sort of chronic state. I just think that'd be a little bit freaky to walk around and look at these people and, I don't know, it'd be a bit eerie, I think. Considering that's a job that uh, we're going to need to fill for the next, I don't know, however many, 100 years, 200 years, 400 years, yeah. I don't know, and I don't, that's one thing I couldn't find out in my research, how long they think you'll be in that state for. Where do you sign to say, bring me out after... 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, whatever. I was watching a show called 100 recently, and in that they had people, it was obviously science fiction, so they were just putting people to sleep and bringing them back 20 years later. So easy. It's so easy. If only we could do the same. But in that particular episode, they had one guy that had lived for several hundred years, but he just slept for 20 years. They'd wake him up, give him an update. He'd give the direction to go in. They'd put him back to sleep again. 20 years later, they'd wake him up again. How do you go through that process when you have no idea if they can bring you back? How do you say after 100 years, give up on it and just go and bury me? I mean, what do you do? Where are the rules around this? I have no idea. Well, I don't think you're going to be arguing too much if something goes wrong either. So it's just <laughs> That's going right. in case of someone's just made a nice 50000 bucks from you. Yeah, exactly. And you're right, actually. Who knows what happens afterwards? I suppose you'd have to have some people looking at it afterwards to say, yeah, no, no, you said you'd keep him in that state for at least a little while. How hard are those great-grandkids going to fight for you if you don't, <laughs> if you never met them? Or great-great-great-grandkids, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting anyway. Here's something that may be just a little bit disconcerting for people who live in high-rise apartment blocks. Just how much would you trust the Amazon delivery guy? And then think about this. What about if someone else trusted them enough to hand over something like a key to your block? Would you be comfortable if, if any Amazon freight delivery employee had a key to your building and maybe thousands of others? That's Hundreds of thousands question. of others. Who knows how many? Yeah. And this is a real battleground at the moment because COVID has obviously pushed a lot more people to be shopping from home, not going out to retail outlets. And the battleground is really trying to get people to come to your site and shop there. Yeah. And Amazon, one of the approaches Amazon is taking is that they're going out and putting in what they call their key for business so that they can, without having to buzz anyone in the building, without having to waste time of yours or theirs, they can just go straight to a building somehow electronically move into the foyer, into the lower levels, into the wherever the dorm is, whatever it might be, in the building, deliver the parcels there, and away he goes, or go up into each individual apartment if that's what he needs mm. to do. So next, you know, someone's knocking on your apartment door and you think you've got a nice secure building and downstairs foyer, no one can get in without their swipe key or whatever it might be. And then next, you know, there's a Amazon freight guy knocking on your door saying, here's your parcel, Mr. Eddie. And you go, hold on, how did you get in here? Oh, I've got key for business. You might not even know he's got key for business to get into your building. And that's the real issue here. Yeah. To take it a step further, Amazon is incentivizing building owners, building managers with gift cards to put in <laughs> the Amazon key for business. They believe it will be a key for their future business because they believe people in that apartment block will want to use a freight delivery company that can get into their building. I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure if people really want that convenience or they're a bit feeling a bit It's a funny. trade-off, isn't it? It is a bit of a yeah. trade-off, yeah. Anyway, Amazon believe that's the way people want, so they're incentivizing building managers and owners, trying to get the key for business in before someone else comes along and gets their particular product in the building and gets them into those foyers. It's yeah. a bit of a battleground going forward, and there'll be, I'm sure, some interesting tactics going forward to see who comes out on top. Yeah, and, and just be interesting to see how uh, what the common feeling is um, by people who live in that building or live in those buildings that, that don't avail themselves to places like Amazon. Yeah, and yeah. there are ways now that you can get a delivery person to open your front door, open your garage, whatever it might be at your house. But that's a bit different because you're making the decision as an individual yeah. to say, I'm happy with 
this technology that certain freight companies can get access to or this technology that they can contact me and I'll let them in. I've got access to that and I make the decision about that. Mm. What's a bit more disconcerting for people here is they're not making the decision. Yeah, you've got 100 people in your block. You might have 1,000 people in your community there. Mm. Yeah, um, well, wait and see. See what happens there. Watch that space. For baseball enthusiasts, you'd be well aware that a pitcher and a catcher have a bit of non-verbal chit-chat between pitchers. You have the hand signals, the coded hand signals and winks and whatnot to, to select the p- next pitch to be hurled at the batter. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about, then your homework is to watch the film Bill Durham, that, that real 80s classic. You're probably going to want to fast forward to the next story as well. Apparently, signal stealing is a big problem in Major League Baseball, so teams are going to go to some extraordinary lengths to stop it. Matt, What's going on beyond the dugout and how the hell is modern tech a solution for this? Well, modern tech has been part of the problem, James, but then as so often happens, modern tech is going to solve the problem that's been created. Before modern tech has to solve another problem <laughs> created by that. So anyway, <laughs> well, let's, yeah, tell us about this. I'm not the greatest baseball fan in the world. I've been to some baseball games in the US and what I found fascinating was the focus on stats. That's a really big issue there for Americans or anyone watching baseball that loves their baseball. And that's great. That's a bit like cricket that you really focus on the stats and everyone knows Don Bradman's average, for example, all sorts of things. Mm. But what I found really amusing was one day I was at the baseball and I, I just couldn't quite get my head wrapped around one bit that was actually happening. So I turned to a local American beside me and said, look, I'm sorry, mate, can you just tell me, I don't understand this bit, this bit, this bit. He said, mate, I've been coming to baseball for 10 years and I don't get it either. So I didn't <laughs> feel so going, bad. Some guy with a, like, you thought he had a dribbly nose, he kept pulling on his nose and an itchy ear, he kept tugging on his earlobe or whatever. And <laughs> no, that no, wasn't like yeah, that. Okay. But one of the things with pitchers, as you said, is that the signaling between the catcher and the pitcher is vital. I, I don't understand why, I don't profess to understand why. I thought the pitcher could make his own mind up as to where to pitch, but apparently not. And so that signaling has traditionally been something that No one really knows about. The batter is looking straight ahead of the pitcher, so he can't know what's going on. But there's been some skullduggery going on where someone might sit there on the other side of the field and have a telephoto lens focused on the catcher. They've all been through all the previous games from this particular catcher, and they know what every different signal means. Then they're sending that signal to a watch that the batsman might be wearing to vibrate a certain number of times, for example, so that they know where the pitcher's going. All illegal, of course. It's just got to be the batsman or the batter should just focus on where that pitcher's going. And now there's a new solution they've come up with, which is being trialled already, and supposedly, if the trial goes well, will be rolled out in Major League Baseball. And it's from a company called Pitchcom. And what happens in this is that the catcher has an oversized watch on, and he flips the lid up on his oversized watch, and he's got a number of buttons in there, something like a keypad, and he will press one or two of those buttons. The pitcher on the mound has a little device that he's wearing. It might be actually on his head behind his ear, but more than likely it'll be just on another part of his body, maybe on his wrist, and it will vibrate to actually let him know where the catcher wants him to pitch that ball. (laughs) This is a major problem, and this is the solution for it. So there'll be this bit of technology just between the catcher and the pitcher. You press the buttons, and the pitcher will know exactly what to do based on that technology. So unless you're feeling the vibrations in your skull, you're going to have no idea what's coming next. (laughs) That's right. There you go. And then, of course, what will happen is there'll be people situated around the area, a bit to your point, where they'll be trying to use some sort of scanner to pick up the encrypted signal from the catcher to the pitcher. (laughs) That's right. And then be able to send that back to the batter and say, this is where it's going to happen. But this is obviously enough of a problem that a whole focus for an individual company has been put on solving this problem. Wow. 
<laughs> well, it's a million-dollar industry, or sorry, billion-dollar industry, no doubt, uh, baseball now. So, What I'm yeah. worried about is when I watch it, it's always amusing to watch the pitcher stick a few fingers down between his legs and do some sort of little crazy signal, and you think, well, I'm just amused by that part of it. Now you'll just see him flip open his wrist and punch Boring. a few buttons. It won't be as Boring. exciting, will it? Yeah. Where's the spectacle? That's right. Windscreens are a pain in the bum to replace. I pull no punches in this show, folks. What starts as off uh, as, as a little star chip, maybe, uh, turns into a crack that meanders and branches its way all the way across the field of vision, and in no time before you know it, you're, you're up for a cool grand or so out of pocket. But the new high-tech models with their driver assist tech, etc., well, you've got some major complications to replace those. And a degree in electrical engineering is probably going to be needed. Am I right, Matt? You are right. You are spot on and expensive, James. I had to replace two windscreens in two of my cars last year. One of them was $5,000 and the other one wasn't far shy of $5,000. Oh, my goodness, right. And, and this is the problem. The technology, as you've alluded to there, the technology in a windscreen is quite incredible. The old days, the windscreen had one job. That was to keep the wind out of your face. Mm. That was about it. Good luck if it did that. And maybe if it rained, it kept most of the rain out of your face as well. Maybe a few leaks here and there. As we've progressed, we as a society, maybe insurance companies as well, have demanded that we get more technology in our vehicles. So we want to know when there's a high beam coming towards us so that we can automatically dim our high beam. We don't want to reach around and twist a stalk on our steering wheel <laughs> if it starts raining and then we have to put our windscreen wipers on. We want to be able to just have windscreen Far wipers come effort. on that's right. right. Come on automatically. We also want some driver assistance so that we've got some either laser technology going through our windscreen, maybe some cameras going through our windscreen. All of this technology means that the windscreen itself is incredibly expensive. Now, they've been structural for some time, so they're obviously made of thicker glass, but that's Mm. pretty easy in terms of that. It's not really that big a deal having thicker glass, so it's a bit more expensive, but they're structural. They've got all this technology built into it. Then you've got to connect that technology. If you have a windscreen replaced, you've got to connect that technology back to the car and then... talk with the computer within the car. That's right. And then the killer. This is the real killer, James. The recalibration of all that technology. And (sighs) there are some locations in reasonably populated areas that I know of where they just don't have the calibration technology there for every different vehicle that's available. So when they replace the windscreen, hook it all back up to the various sensors, then they put it on a truck, send it off somewhere else. Send it back to the factory. To have five-minute calibration done or Uh, recalibration done, then send it back and away you go. So that all adds up to incredible expense. Sorry, how long does the recalibration take? Oh, probably five or ten minutes. It's not that long a process to actually recalibrate it. Right. But again, insurance companies are paying for some of this process because there are insurance claims in the past. You didn't worry about an insurance claim on your windscreen. Some of those insurance policies that say one windscreen a year will replace are suddenly changing those policies because they used to think it was $500 and now it's $5,000. But again, the insurance companies hopefully are still getting some benefits out of it because we've got fewer accidents because of this technology or less damage because of this technology. So hopefully that's helping and hopefully the human aspect of it as well. We're having fewer people damaged or killed from car accidents because we've got this technology built in. But it is something that's a bit different now that you just don't think it's that easy or you think Mm. it's easy. It's not that easy just to go and get a windscreen replaced. Goodness me. That's progress. Uh, More news from the US. The American Senate has in recent years, you might say, been fairly conservative in its movements. I guess we can't throw stones from here in Australia on that front. But uh, in a move seemingly straight out of left field, they've gone all green on us and thrown up a subsidy for EVs, particularly with electric bikes. Matt, how the hell did this get through? 
who's on the take and how are General Motors and the gun lobby going to feel about this? Well, obviously they haven't had much of a say on it yet. And I must just clarify it there. This is at the moment just a proposal oh, okay, sorry. for the Senate. So we it haven't actually seen it go through yet. Okay. Hopefully it I'm will. jumping the gun. You are jumping the gun, but hopefully it will. I'd love to see it go through. And maybe the lobby groups that you talk about aren't so worried about it because they think it won't be that big a hit. But it's for people that want to buy an e-bike in America. Yeah, how do you pour petrol into that? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Gasoline, your gun, yeah. Nowhere to mount your gun, nowhere for your petrol or your gasoline to go in, and nowhere for GMs of the world to actually sell some of these unless they want to go into e-bike production. But it is a valid solution for transportation. If people could start to use e-bikes, for example, to do their daily commute, that would take cars off the road, sorry, General Motors, but that would be good for the roads, it'd be good for congestion, it'd be good for the environment, a whole range of benefits. And that's where this proposal has gone to the Senate to try and get it through to give some tax subsidies or some subsidies back on the actual purchase. You've got some subsidies for EVs in various states across America, and that's great. That makes those EVs a bit cheaper. But there's nothing in place for e-bikes. They've come up with a nice acronym. It's actually called the E-Bike Act, which I think that makes sense. But bike actually stands for Bicycle Incentive Kickstart for the Environment. So they've ah, managed to wrap in clever. an acronym that spells out bike. Which <laughs> and I someone got paid good. several thousand dollars for that too, which <laughs> at is least, well done them. At least. So the bikes, e-bikes in America are costing maybe anywhere from $1,000 to $8,000. You can get even more expensive ones, but that's the sort of normal range. And one of the things they say that if you could just replace 15% of car trips for work only, if that's all you did was replace 15% of car trips, that would reduce your carbon emissions by 12%, which kind of makes sense. Mm. It's replacing that and, and getting that down. So that sounds like it's quite good. And the real concept they're talking about here is the electrification of transport is not just about cars. It is about bikes. It's about buses. It's about trains. It's about all forms of transport, not just cars. So they'll give you a subsidy. They'll give you 30% of the new bikes purchase up to a maximum subsidy of $1,500. That's not too bad. If you said, oh, look, I'll go and spend $1,000 on that new e-bike, you only pay $700 for it. $300 is is a tax subsidy. Mm. So that sounds pretty impressive. And again, if you get to that point where you're getting more bikes on the road, it seems to be good for everyone and progress that entire bike industry. What also fascinates me here in Australia is that we actually sell more new bikes in Australia per year than we do cars per year. Really? We don't see our, our roads flooded with bicycles apart if it's six o'clock in the morning when you see a few mammals out and about. So that's interesting that we do sell so many bikes here, but we just don't see them used for transport in Australia. And it would be a logical country to use in most places around the country to use for transport better than some places like, say, Amsterdam, where bikes are all over the place for transport and there's some pretty cold temperatures there. We have much better conditions for bike riding. Maybe this is the sort of thing that we could actually look at here in Australia as well. Well, yeah, we'll look forward to that. E-bikes on the way. Fingers crossed. I'm yet to have a crack at flying drones myself. I mean, the proper ones, the ones that cost more than a show bag, because apparently they're a real hoot, right? But with great power comes great responsibility, and there are big rules that go with the hobby. And the FAA in the US are looking for ways to really clamp down on drone hoons. (laughs) That's right. And we're into acronyms today, James. The test you've got to do from the FAA is called TRUST, which stands for the Recreational Unmanned Aircraft Systems Safety Test. That's a sweet one. There. That's right. right. So you've got to pass trust. the trust test. That came in a few weeks ago. If you're flying a drone in the US at the moment, which obviously we're not doing because we're not in the US and we're not be- going to be able to get to the US for some time probably, <laughs> but if we were flying a drone in the US, we would be breaking the law unless we'd passed the trust test. 
Now, passing the trust so dri- test... Drone flies driver's licence, right? Well, not even kind of. not even that much, I don't think, because I did have a look at some of the questions on the trust test, and they were pretty simple questions, and you had unlimited tries at getting it right. If you just did it in one go, it was about seven or eight minutes, and you can keep going back. They'll give you the right answer if you get it wrong. You can keep going back and doing it again and again. Do you have any questions like, are you looking to blow anything up? <laughs> no, no. Okay, they, right. they had questions about how high can I fly a drone? Right. Can I fly near an airport? So fairly simple questions like that. It applies for anyone flying a drone that weighs more than 249 grams. And that's most drones, apart from the ones, as you say, that you get out of a show bag, the little tiny ones that fly around for two minutes in your house. But any any more serious drone that, you should have one of these flying licenses to be able to do it. And if anyone comes along and says, hey, Mr. Eddie, you're flying a drone there, show me your license, you've got to carry it with you and be able to show it Mm. to anyone that asks. I don't think most people would ask about it because they don't know about it yet. But it's probably a pretty good sign that the FAA is saying that this is an issue. People are flying them too high. They're going too close to airports. When we start to get more air traffic coming back once we're past our pandemic and air traffic resumes to something like normal, this may be a major problem, which is why they're getting in now to try and get some of these things in place before people start getting near airports and creating havoc. And plus, um, real enthusiasts are going to start building their own swarm. There it is again. (laughs) And they've got to be able to control those swarms suitably for the FAA. I love it. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's wind up for today with the latest news across the big EV companies. Well, I did promise last week, James, that I wouldn't do any cyber attack stories this week. And I've and you've gotten away with it. I've kept, well my, done. kept my promise. And we did have, for a little while there, I, th- I thought we were focusing on EVs a little bit. So we had a bit of a hiatus from EVs. And they just keep popping up everywhere. And I, I can't help myself. And it's I thought an I'd exciting give, field. It is an exciting field. So I thought I'd give a quick little wrap on just a few companies this week on where they're at and where they're headed. And I find some of these fascinating. Rivian is one that's just been doing a massive round of funding. And they've raised another two and a half billion, that's billion with a B, <laughs> another two and a half billion dollars. That adds to the seven and a half billion they've already previously raised. So they've raised $10 billion. And so I've never heard of them before. Never heard of them. And so far, they've sold zero vehicles. So they've raised <laughs> that's $10 why billion. Heard of them That's why you haven't heard of them. They've raised $10 billion. They've got no cars that you can actually go and buy yet. And this last successful fundraising was fully subscribed. So people jumped in all over it. Now, I must admit, they've got a few reasonable size companies backing them. They've got Ford backing them. They've got Amazon backing them. They've got a contract with Amazon to make a bunch of delivery vehicles for Amazon. So you think that's a pretty good contract there. And I think one of the real secrets why people love the idea of Rivian, one of the secrets they've got is they've got their truck, their ute that comes out supposedly September, maybe October this year, finally. And I think that will really take the American market by storm. We've seen the popularity of the F-150 already. Mm. So we'll see this be incredibly popular. And one of the things I love on the Rivian is they've got all the tricks that you can have with electric vehicle, like we saw in the F-150 with charging ports everywhere and the front that's got a refrigerator in it. The Rivian has got one extra little thing. You pull out from behind the seats and you've got an induction stove there. So forget about this barbecue. Forget about lighting a fire. Go and collect some sticks that we can get the fire going with. You pull out an induction stove from the side of it to use the battery that you've got there with that incredible power. I would have thought that would have sapped a lot of battery power and that might be fairly sort of 
risky. But well, yeah. well, it probably does, but they've got some pretty big batteries and mm. you're probably not using it for long. You're probably using that stove for 15 minutes, not for hours at a time. It's your survival stove. Well, just to cook up those steaks that you want to cook just right. Or is it the stove that you've got to have because no one else has got a stove in their car? Possibly you want to talk about it more than use it. That yeah. might be part of the issue yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So Rivian, they're going well, $10 billion there. Lucid Motors is another one that have not sold a single car yet. And they've just done a new round of fundraising, four and a half billion dollars. They've just raised in some new capital as well. Wow. Now, without Lucid, selling a car, without selling a car, Lucid believe that they're going to not only take on Tesla but knock off Tesla with their performance vehicle. They've got a performance vehicle that is going to knock the Model S played off the planet, yeah, and wow. so they've got some pretty big claims there. So people believe in them and are backing them all the way. That's pretty big talk for someone who hasn't sold a car yet. <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, Mercedes Benz have sold a car, and they've just started introducing the electric vehicle to their range, electric vehicles to their range. They'll even bring some to Australia. They're saying that by 2025, they will no longer develop any petrol or any diesel-powered cars at all. They'll keep selling the existing ones, no new development after 2025. That's a big commitment. It is a big commitment. By 2030, they believe that they'll really be selling minimal numbers. Maybe in Australia, they'll still be selling some petrol or diesel-powered cars, but they really think around the world the whole shift will be towards EVs. And one of the things that the person that I heard interviewed about this pointed out was that the electric vehicle market seems to have focused on the luxury car market to begin with, probably because they're a bit more expensive with the batteries. And Mercedes-Benz said, well, that's our market. That's our entire market is the whole luxury car market. Why aren't we there? So they're focusing on that and really trying to get there. And then last of all, Tesla just brought out their latest figures for the second quarter of this calendar year. And they sold 206,000 vehicles in that quarter. Keeping on at that rate, obviously, they're getting up close to the million mark. It wasn't that many years ago that people scoffed at the idea of Tesla even hitting 100,000 vehicles in a year. Mm. To get close to that million vehicle mark is quite incredible. Yeah, some really special things coming out of there. And and it really interests me about the direction that uh, Mercedes-Benz have gone. Does it mean we're getting their scraps in like in 10 years? Are we we getting the Mercedes-Benz scraps? Is that right? Absolutely. Here here in Australia? While we've got our current policies in place, I think we'll get a lot of scraps. That is one frustration that people have often expressed to me is that they say, gee, I want to get into the electric vehicle market. And I saw this great model the other day and they rattle off the specs to it. But of course, we haven't got it in this country because we've just got policies that seem to be saying, go away, electric vehicles, we don't want you. Where's some more petrol we can burn? Mm, Soon, soon, maybe things will change. And just like that, it's all over again for yet another week, kids. As always, we're eternally grateful for you logging on, but let's face it, we'd be here anyway. This just keeps us off the streets and out of petty crime. Matt, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure chinwagging about what's at the cutting edge, and thank you very much once again. Thank you for your contribution, James. Subscribe, rate, review. Keep those other new listeners coming in. I'm your host, James Eddy, and we'll catch you all again in a week's time, folks.